Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week at 10 a.m. on November 17th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everyone. Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hi, Julie. And Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. So, health reform, not dead yet. (laughs) Now it's become part of the tax bill. Didn't we say last week that was not going to happen? Um, It's always going to happen. (laughs) It's never dead. It's always undead, and it'll pop back up when the moment is ripe, and that could be now. So there's lots of health policy in the tax bill. Well, what's what I mean, I guess the big thing, though, is the individual mandate, right? As of now, it's in the Senate finance. The Senate bill that went through the Finance Committee late last night, when they come back after Thanksgiving, they will uh, tackle this. The Senate health, the Senate tax bill will will go to the full floor. Uh, It will go to the floor with the individual mandate in it. But that, you know, the tax bill went through the House, you know, lickety split really easy yesterday. Um, It is not going to be that easy in the Senate, based on what we know now as they start their Thanksgiving break, it, it is not a sure thing that the individual mandate will be in it at the end of the day, but it is a very realistic possibility. We know that Susan Collins doesn't like it, and we know that other senators don't like other things in the tax bill, or four or five of them who, who voice concerns. And but, it only takes two, to, or know, takes three, three, technically, to kill And it. we also know there's some others who aren't necessarily crazy about the mandate who haven't spoken out yet. It was interesting that the House did not put it in their version and they were waiting to see if the Senate could actually get it done. I think they were a little bit uh, you know, they they touched the stove earlier this year, and they the house. Yes, the house took a tough vote on a health bill, only to see the Senate leave them hanging. And so, I think they didn't want that to happen again. Well, I think it's also they needed their numbers to. They're not sure if they can get it through the Senate, and they needed their numbers to add up in the House. Without it, they're, they'll be happy. To, I mean, the House it should. There, there's a handful of conservatives who don't want to do it because they want to go further, or they're afraid that other things will be done, like the Marie Alexander bill that'll mitigate some of the damage. But I, I would have trouble seeing it not go through this the House if it goes through the Senate. There'd be some noise, but it should go through the House. But the, it just sort of the, the mechanics of how do you send a bill back and forth between the House and Senate. The House didn't want to have a bill that would be really in trouble if they put the mandate on and indicted the Senate. They're safer this way. They can add it. And we should point out, we should just remind people that, that eliminating is actually not technically eliminating the mandate because they can't do that under budget rules, but they can eliminate the fines, right, <laughs> which, so they make which, it which effectively is right, is, is eliminating the mandate. And that doing that gains them $338 billion over 10 years that they can spend on other tax cuts. Although, But I think it's an interesting question of, you know, what does it mean to re- to get rid of the fines for the individual mandate right now. You know, one of the things, it will still be the case that in the United States, you are required to carry health insurance. And I think there's a lot of questions about, I think it's different to repeal the mandate now than would have to never have it go into effect. That's what the CBO said. Which CBO, I, I, yeah, so I agree with CBO, even though I know some parts of their estimate are pretty controversial right now. But I think it's a question of how... It's a real unknown to me. You know, we have a lot of estimates through the CBO number. We have other independent groups that have analyzed it. 
I think it's clear that some people lose coverage and premiums would rise, but the amount feels very unknown to me. It feels like very uncharted territory. But what Susan Collins was banging the drum about, and and I ran into her right as she was going into the Republican conference meeting to present this data to her colleagues to try to convince them not to do this. She had her staff, which she was very proud to tell me includes economists and tax lawyers, crunch the numbers, and she presented that premiums would rise so much for some people that it would completely cancel out all of the other tax breaks they would get from all of the other provisions in the bill. And when Republican senators came out of that meeting, some of them seemed a little bit convinced and were at least saying, "Okay, well, if we go for the mandate repeal, we do have to do something like Murray Alexander because they they didn't want rising premiums to be on their heads. Although, I mean, you know, they're uh, we had dinner with Larry Levitt <laughs> um, earlier this week, who was saying that doing, get, getting rid of the fines for the mandate and doing Murray Alexander, which would be putting back the cost sharing reductions. You know, one of them is huge and one of them is tiny. So that putting back the cost sharing reductions would not have much of a dent in the the premium impact of getting rid of the the penalty. Because the big unknown, as Larry pointed out to us and on Twitter, because we all follow him, um, is that we don't know how the plans are going to react. Mm-hmm. So we know that a lot of plans left this year because of the uncertainty over the cost-sharing subsidies. There was an exodus. And just because, you know, CBO is the best guess, mm-hmm. you know, it's the smartest kids in the room and it's still a guess. And the insurers may feel that this is really a damaging thing and we may go through the whole Bear County, less competition, higher, you know, we don't know yeah. what it we don't Although know how it Obama plays out. Obamacare has proved shockingly, I thought we would have had Bear Counties this year. I went into this year thinking... And I was wrong. I think the premium support was more potent than I had realized. And I think those premiums, I mean, they do stick around for, what is it, like 85% of the market is subsidized at this point? 85% Um, of the people on the exchange. exchange. I do agree. Like, the people off the exchange, like, this could be a pretty rough go. But I was surprised this year we had no Bear Counties. And it makes me, I mean, I'd be nervous about it if the individual mandate came out. But it, it... surprised me how many insurers were willing to stick with it, even in a era of a lot of uncertainty. But that also makes it easier for the Republicans to get rid of the mandate because mm-hmm. they can say, oh, everybody thought this year would fall apart. It didn't. So we can take rid of the mandate and it won't. And we don't know if it will or not. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, if you're a Republican and you can say to a constituent, I got you a tax cut and I got rid of that mandate, um, which people hate, it, you know, it's... An attractive Unless the constituent is sick and really needs health insurance <laughs> and their premiums go way up because of that. It's Ten million people on the exchanges, right? And and yeah, some but it's of seven million people off, off the exchange. exchanges, right? But the they and they're mostly that, Republicans. But that whole explaining how you know a goes to B goes to the shin bone <laughs> and the ankle bone, people don't understand all that stuff. You know, but my, there was a right. new Kaiser poll today about. Um, Republicans taking the blame for more health care problems and Still. Re- really owning it. <laughs> uh, before we leave the tax bill, I want to ask about the medical expense deduction, because now I've lost track. That's in the House bill, but not in the Senate bill? They t- they were, they changed right. it. They eliminated it in the House bill, and they preserved it in the Senate bill. Right. I mean, because that's another place where people, you know, that, that as Susan Collins was saying about the mandate, that would, for people who need that, um, uh, who, who take that deduction, so they have medical expenses that are more than 10% of their income, that would, losing that deduction would completely dwarf the size of the tax cut for right. the vast so majority most, of those people. Right. Most people don't have enough medical expenses to take that deduction, so it does not 
uh, affect most Americans, but those Americans who have big expenses have really big expenses. These are uh, tend to be things like paying for uh, you know your parents' nursing home, um, disabled children, and we've seen how powerful a lobby that is, and how powerful that story affects. Um, the public, um, some of the really, really expensive drugs, you know, whether it's MS or cancer or the, uh, some of the other biologics that are, you know, $100,000 a year. Um, it's, you're, if you're taking that deduction big time, it is because you have enormous well, expenses. One of the things that surprised me about this deduction, I think actually our co-host Margo Singer-Katz from The Times pointed this out on Twitter first. It's one of the rare deductions that's actually used decently frequently by low-income Americans because it's set as a percentage of your income. Most low-income Americans aren't going to itemize. They're just going to take the standard deduction. But if you're someone you know who's earning $30,000 and you have $3,000 of medical expenses, you're above that 10% threshold. So it is one of... Most of these particular line item deductions we talk about, um, they would mostly affect higher income Americans. But this is one that would actually hit, you know, lower and middle income Americans who have some of the bills that Joanne was describing. Yeah. And that income, they, they'd be able to get, they'd spend down. If they're paying for a nursing home, they're not, in that income group, they're not going to be, be able to pay for the nursing home right. very long without the uh, tax help. So they'd end up on Medicaid. But um, but if you have a high deductible plan, mm-hmm. you're going to, yeah. right. just, just your deductible is going to get you over the 10%. Right. And also, we shouldn't forget that another huge health policy impact from the tax bill is potentially a, a large automatic cut to Medicare. The CBO said that because the the uh, the house it was the analysis the house bill right yes um, would uh, blow up the deficit so much that it would trigger more uh, than 130 billion in automatic cuts including 25 billion from Medicare Medicaid per year per year (laughs) Medicaid is protected um, but Medicare is on the chopping block I think yeah I think there's been so little attention Mm -hmm. to this that that even though and it's it's the interplay of a couple of different complicated budget laws. Um, but the the one, you know, yes, they did the budget resolution that says they can spend this money and add it to the deficit. The problem is there's this other law that says if you add it to the deficit, we're going to cut everything else automatically. And I think that's been, you know, dramatically undercovered in this debate. Um, I think very, very few people are aware of it, again, because it's really complicated. Which but. is why the tax story is not over. I mean, but, the, you know, the the fact is, though, that the Republicans really want to pass a tax bill. <laughs> and it may not be the tax bill that exists today or the tax bills that exist today. It may come out looking different. But the political imperative for the Republicans to be able to ta- pass a tax bill, if you're a Republican, a moderate or a conservative, you're really going to want to pass some kind of tax bill because you haven't done anything else except name some post office this year. <laughs> and that's going to be a really tough vote. And then there would be a different really tough vote on whether to waive and protect Medicare from these automatic cuts. They have a lot to do and only a couple of weeks to do it if they want to finish this stuff in, in 2017 between between holiday parties. Um, let's talk for a minute about open enrollment, which is clicking along, apparently. Um, Literally. Click, click, click. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, HHS put out week two numbers and they look really strong. But some people say, don't be overly optimistic. Who? What do we, what do we think about how open enrollment is going? I mean, I think it. I see both why supporters of Obamacare are very encouraged by this, and why it's not necessarily a sign that everything is super peachy. 
because I think there was an expectation that enrollment would just be lower out of the gate. And I think this is giving, you know, enrollment well, there's workers. There's been almost no publicity. There's been no publicity. Well, well there's been a lot of negative us. publicity. <laughs> so there's government. been a From lot the of. Government. Yeah. So there's been a lot of attention paid to it. And, you know, as. um. I looked this up as President Trump wrote in his book, Art of the Deal, you know, even bad press is good press. Um, and I think we're seeing that play out. That being said, um, there was a great chart um, that John Tazi from Bloomberg tweeted kind of showing where we are now in open enrollment and like how how much further there is to go and how much it'll matter that this open enrollment is really short. Right. Um, it's, it's and as long as last we are not year. on a trajectory to double the pace of enrollment right now, but maybe it'll speed up when we get to the deadline. It's really unpredictable. We know people respond to deadlines, but we don't know how they're going to respond to a deadline that they were unfamiliar with last right. year. So the, the weekly rate is high, but there aren't a lot of weeks is, is what it comes down and to. And it's not high enough. So mm-hmm. it would have to be double what it was last year to even reach the same numbers as last year. It is not double. Yeah, it I is think it's high. like 140%, mm-hmm. but not 200%. Right. And in the meantime, even though, as Sarah said, there are no bare counties, which is it was kind of, you know, a big relief to supporters of the law, there are the typical problems popping mm-hmm. up. There was a story on the front page of the Washington Post this week about a family in northern Virginia who's down to one insurer and the insurer doesn't cover the big teaching hospital where their four-year-old is getting cancer chemotherapy, which, you know, granted, this is a this has been an ongoing issue with some of the narrow networks from some of these plans, but you know, usually you could you would have another plan. Plan, um, which also might not have covered the teaching yeah, hospital. The children's <laughs> hospitals has been an issue from the beginning. I yeah. mean, in Washington State, there were lawsuits over it right, from yeah. the first year. But 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 point being that even if you have plans technically available, they might not be plans that are useful to you or that you need or that are, as we talked about earlier, might be for people who don't get subsidies prohibitively expensive. So even though even though there's there is there are plans out there, this is not a completely healthy program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is something, you know, the ACA, like Joanne was saying, has struggled with since the beginning. I think the Trump administration and the uncertainty made these problems even more challenging. But we've seen, you know, a general gravitation to pretty narrow networks in the ACA plans. And I think a lot of people like that. They would rather pay the lower premium and not have access to as many doctors. But then you have a few people who really need access to that one doctor. And there aren't really a ton of checks in the ACA to fix this problem. There are some requirements around network adequacy that are enforced by the insurance regulators on the state level. Um, And I don't know if that'll end up coming up for this family in Virginia. But there isn't a great check on this in, in the law to prevent a problem like the one that the Washington Post was writing about. Which is a really, really sick four-year-old. So, mm-hmm. um, and there is not an alternative for this kid in in the health plan. So you have situations where either there there are a number of things. There could be a regulatory mm-hmm. solution. The health plan could just say we don't we understand your child just can't get care anywhere else. We will cut a deal with this hospital. We will cover it for you. Particularly the, now that it's been on the front page right. of the Washington Post. But also there are rules for people who are in ongoing right, care. Right. And mm-hmm. and um, also the hospital could decide to get them a really big discount. I mean that's another. Uh, again, once it was on the front pages of the Washington Post. Because remember, these narrow networks, there's two sides. to it. it's, it's not just the insurer not wanting to pay, but it's also the hospital not wanting to lower and their I prices. And I think this will get solved because I it's think gotten attention, but there's a lot of people we don't know about who are in this situation. Point. It's yes. not like a great it's not a great system if the way to fix your insurance problem is get a story on a front page of a national newspaper. There are other people we don't know about who are 
in the same situation yes. right now. And there are other people we do know about because they've been on the front pages of other newspapers in other parts of the country. That but, was... it, but, but Sarah's right. I mean, this is not the way to solve healthcare in America case by case by writing <laughs> newspaper stories. I mean, there has to be a healthcare network that if, you, you know, if you're the parent of a four-year-old with cancer, you want to be able to be damn sure your kid can get taken care of. In the, in the meantime, but that's also remember that's not just the ACA. Narrow mm-hmm. networks are not just Obamacare. They existed before Obamacare. If Obamacare went away tomorrow, they would still exist. It is a cost issue that is visible and acute within Obamacare, mm-hmm. but it exists. You could be in a, an employer yeah. network and not be able to get to that same children's hospital. I mean, I recently wrote about a family in California who. Um, they have a daughter with some serious health issues, and the best experts are at Stanford's Children's Hospital, Lucille Packard, which is out of network for their plan. They made the decision to go out of network, and they ended up with a $25,000 bill for an MRI scan on their three-year-old daughter. Um, and Pack- even when I-, I wrote about it, and Packard has not backed off the charge. They have not said, oh, this is... <laughs> $25,000 MRI scan. I mean, they would have a gold-plated MRI. <laughs> exactly. um, and so I think, yeah, you're, I think you're totally right. And this was a case where the parents made the conscious decision that, yes, we could get this care elsewhere, but Packard is the right place for this very specialized disease. And they have... They are, you know, $800 a month. They are paying the price for that decision. One one of the best things that happened to the Washington Post in the last 20 years was that Blue Cross, uh, the federal Blue Cross plan got in a fight with Children's Hospital here in Washington, and there ended up being full-page ads in the Post. It was like every day for a month (laughs) um, because, you know, all the federal employees wanted to be able to take their kids to Children's, and Children's was trying to hold up Blue Cross, and Blue Cross didn't want to pay them. And it was, you know, I I, I believe they finally reached a rapprochement. But, yeah, clearly the winner in that battle was the Washington Post, just for (laughs) And not every every routine childhood disease needs to go to a specialized Mm -hmm. children's hospital, but these these specialized children's hospitals do exist for a reason. I mean, for kids who have, I mean, I don't know if we've all been to children's. I mean, I've been to, not the one in, I've been to the one in Washington, I've been elsewhere. I mean, there, there are kids who are really, really sick and they get, you know, really advanced care at these specialized institutions. And if you're a parent, you're going to want them there. So it looks like maybe we're going to have somebody home at HHS at some point. Um, As you heard here last week, if you were listening, Alex Azar, the former general counsel and former deputy secretary in the George W. Bush administration, um, most recently at Eli Lilly in Indiana, has been nominated to be the new HHS secretary. Obviously, there's been so much other news this week. Uh, Are there any potential hurdles to this nomination? There's going to be noise. I mean, we're going to hear about the price of insulin, which went up when he was at Lilly. And we will hear about drug prices in general. And we will hear about, you know, Democrats saying, uh, you know, Trump is putting a pharma executive and people will talk about how the norms have changed. But as we said last week, you know, it was only announced this week, but last week we all knew it was coming and we hadn't gotten the kind of email Organized onslaught blowback. that we have gotten. And, you know, people, uh, we're, we said this last week, people do, people may not be crazy. He's not just a Lilly executive. He also did work in the Bush administration. Democrats, some Democrats know him, some, some HHS, CMS staff know him and are fairly comfortable. We've seen some of the um, healthcare interest groups already come out and say, we've seen some liberals say things like, you know, well, it's as good as we're going to get. <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs> right. I thought it was notable. Andy Slavitt, right. the former Medicare administrator, he, he put out that. a statement saying, I hope he could be a good HHS secretary. No, he didn't say I expect him to, but it wasn't like, you know, Andy. For Andy, that's like a big hug. <laughs> yes. For too. Andy, who is not shy about criticizing the Trump right. administration, I thought that kind of signaled where Democrats are at. Obviously, they'd prefer someone different, but they understand this is a Republican administration and this is 
a guy who's familiar with the agency, who, like, knows how it works, who, like, has that bureaucrat background a little bit um, in his resume. But I think I think the line of attack from some uh, Democrats that we're likely to hear is along the lines of revolving door, Fox guarding the hen house, he's going to be regulating an industry he used to, you know, be a part of, et cetera. So we'll hear that. And this, at the same time, we're going to there'll be this sort of sigh of relief in the background that I mean, there were there were names circulating that we all heard that the liberal Democrats um, Dr. Oz, <laughs> um, Rick Santorum. I mean, we, we, you know, we Bobby talked about Jindal. right. I mean, that yeah. are, are are the liberal Democrats going to make these points? Yes, unless anything that we don't know about him emerges in the next few weeks, it'll probably and there could be right. I mean. But also there's say there's that he scheduled his hearing for also, an incredibly quiet day. His hearing is going to be the way, or no, it's the, it no, went, help. It's, but that's the help committee. committee. That's not the finance. finance. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 Finance is still doing its okay. work. I mean, yeah. things can go, we've all, we have all seen, yes. uh, this looks like a pretty smooth, maybe even before Christmas. I mean, this looks like a fairly, I don't know if they can get through all the paperwork, but this looks like a pretty smooth confirmation given what, what we things know now. can happen, but we all, you know, like since we've learned things about people mm-hmm. in the last 24 hours that, um, you know, can change trajectories. And we are in that age. But, you know, what what we're seeing now is, you know, sound, but not so much fury. Uh, and meanwhile, since, since we are doing this every week, Chip, it's been, what, eight neither weeks now? Neither sound nor fury. Yes, neither sound nor fury on children's health insurance, although I guess there was a little bit of a tiff last night at, late in the finance committee about the the fact that the finance committee is working on the tax bill and not the chip bill, though in fairness, the finance committee has approved the chip bill. It's waiting to go to the floor. Um, but we did, the, the one little bit of news is that apparently uh, the administration found some money for states who were running out. $600 million for 10 states and four territories. CMS made available yesterday. I'm not exactly sure technically how, where they, you know, whose couch they found that money under. Um, I, I didn't have time yesterday to go into the delving where it came from or how. But, yeah, I mean, they do not want a crisis. They do not want uh, kids kicked off their insurance. They don't want the headlines, and I don't think they necessarily want the kids mm-hmm. kicked off insurance. I mean, it creates a problem for states. It creates, it's not just optics, it just creates all sorts of problems. And, and of course, as we've said, Utah, home of, of Orrin Hatch, yeah. is one of the states that's about to run out of money. Um, what, what, uh, what I found this curious mostly because if the Democrats had done this, the Republicans would have screamed bloody murder. It's like, the authorization expired. How are you giving them more money? Well, I think no one wants to be on the other side of kids having health insurance, so... Clearly. I think that's kind of one of the dynamics in here is that no one's going to say, oh, actually, I'd prefer you didn't give that money to state so they could insure their their kids. Everyone, the reason it's such a bizarre situation is everyone wants this program to continue, yet they've taken absolutely no steps to ensure that it will. Right, because we should repeat that the fight isn't over chip, it's over how do you pay for chip. The Democrats, or whether you pay for it. Whether, right, yeah. They're I mean, not paying for their tax cuts. Right, the the... The, the the chip policy remains bipartisan. The chip financing or non-financing or how you finance or do you take it out of the ACA or what? I mean, that's where the partisan fight is. Um, in the in the House, it's a very clear-cut partisan fight. In the Senate, is still taking place more behind the scenes. But um, that's the fight. The fight is not do we continue the chip program. Republicans and Democrats don't, both want to continue the chip program. All of us around this table still think it will get resolved. Um, I, we still think it'll be a four-year, uh, well, a five-year yeah, fix, five year. which we, none of us expected a few weeks ago. But, you know, the end of the year is really messy. This year it's epic messy. And, um, you know, how they 
there are a lot of trade-offs that are going to be made in the next few weeks or, or more temporary funding and kicking the can, which is, you know, we all know they're very good at. But there's no sign that 9 million kids are going to lose their health insurance. Uh, there's no sign at all. But the irony is that we just had years of legal battles over this very question, and that's where why we're in the CSR mess, because... <laughs> the, the administration was giving money that someone giving said they money that give. Congress didn't appropriate, and now the administration is giving money that Congress didn't appropriate again. But because it's for children in hospitals, nobody's going to say anything. <laughs> and also because the, it's not forever, probably. I mean, it's probably another month or so. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, I didn't want to let this week pass without noting uh, the the passing of Uva Reinhardt, uh, who taught health economics at Princeton, taught pretty much every health reporter who's ever covered this beat. Um, I just, you know, he was. He was a, a stalwart of of explaining, not just explaining how the system works but and how the it system fun to listen to. <laughs> yes, and 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 also that there there we're talking about real people. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think one of his I tweeted this already, but the piece of his that really shaped how I think about healthcare is a piece he did with Gerald Anderson at um, Johns Hopkins University with the fantastic. Um, um, title, It's the Price is Stupid. And it really makes a very convincing argument. I think it's from the mid-90s, yeah. but it is it 100% is. true today yeah. that the reason American healthcare is so expensive, it is not because we use a lot of healthcare. It's just we pay outlandish prices each time we go. And I thought Uwe, he just, he was from Germany. He was educated in Canada. He brought this amazing outsider's perspective to our healthcare system and was willing to call out things that were not working and do it. I loved he would open a lot of speeches with this line saying, you know, maybe I'm just an immigrant. So maybe there's something I don't understand. Um, He just had such a wonderful air about him. And I've had so many lovely, fantastic interviews. Um, He will, I think, really be be missed by a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, he's a, in my case, he's not just a someone I knew professionally, but he was actually a, he and May, his wife, are his um, were friends and neighbors of my parents. So I actually, although I actually don't have any actual memory of him as a teenager, apparently I wasn't so engaged in healthcare at the moment. But um, I also have personal memories of him. Um, he was he later, was, not as a teenager, but later, <laughs> later in life, I did I do have personal memories of times I've run into him in, in great kindness. He was he was one of the first people who, when I started this beat in, in the late nineteen eighties, who you know, sort of was able to explain things in a way that I was able to understand. Which I and never condescending, never, never, mm-hmm. never like, oh, you should get this. I think he took a lot of joy in like getting into the ba- basics of healthcare, this prices thing that a lot of people had set aside. He talked about it and it was fantastic. And he also like had, um, I mean, he was eighty, and he 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 had the same enthusiasm mm-hmm. at seventy nine as you know he had before any of us knew him. Yes, that he was definitely enthusiastic, which was a good thing. All right, well, we're going to wrap up this week with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it; we will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site khn.org. Who wants to start this week, uh, Joanne? Oh, my colleague Arthur Allen at Politico Magazine has a piece today about um, Air Louisville, which is not is not in fact a pair of sneakers. It's about a um, program to give people apps and and devices to track asthma drug use and when they have their um, attacks and how to mitigate. But what it is, is what's so interesting is it's actually brought into a larger public health and environmental program, uh, including a bourbon heiress. Um, so it's it's um, uh, Louisville is trying to um, clean up its air. There's like even data through this about where do you need to go plant more trees? So it's sort of the individual patient, 
the local neighborhood environment and the larger um, city environment. Um, so it's population health and individual health and sort of also population air health. Alice. Uh, I am humbly uh, going to promote something I wrote this week just Please because do. <laughs> it was such a crazy week and so much was happening and, and it got a little bit buried. But uh, I I did a piece going off a Kaiser brief that I found so interesting about renewal notices that are going out to millions of people around the country who are on the individual market to renew their plan, warning that if they don't choose actively renew or choose a plan, they'll get auto enrolled in their current plan. And for a lot of people, these notices are giving wild overestimates of how much they're going to have to pay next year, sometimes hundreds more per month, sometimes double or triple what they're paying now, when, in fact, if they go online, they'll learn that's not true. The reason this is happening is the renewal notices show next year's premiums, but this year's subsidies, where, but the subsidies for most people will go up a lot as the premiums go up a lot and the letters because of when they had to be sent out couldn't take that into account. So people are getting these, they're freaking out and uh, state insurance commissioners are worried that people won't won't figure out how to get the real estimate and will just throw up their hands and maybe not, not enroll or so there, there's a lot of and, and it's coming in a time of just general confusion about uh, enrollment and the future of the Affordable Care Act. And so it's something to really pay attention to. It could be a big issue. Awesome. Uh, Sarah. <laughs> um, I want to recommend a story from Bloomberg Businessweek called um, how, I'm not going to get the title exactly right, it was how a company made a fortune on Obamacare. And it is from um, Brian Gurley, Zachary Tracer, and Hannah Recht, who looked at this relatively obscure health insurance company called Centene that bet big on the marketplaces and actually did great. They have been kind of the knight in shining armor expanding into those counties we thought were bare. And it's a really nice profile. Well, there were a long-time Medicaid insurer. Long-time Medicaid insurer. Yeah, who really right, Malina, um, right. has done a lot better than the Uniteds or Aetnas of the world. And it's a nice profile of the people, the executives there, the decisions they made, kind of how, um, you know, Trump has been saying, oh, these companies are making a fortune on Obamacare. Well, Bloomberg went out and found one of a small handful of companies for which that is true, and looked at how they did it. Thank you. Uh, mine is from Stat News uh, by Aaron Mershon. It's about the Tennessee Farm Bureau plans. And Sarah, you wrote about this earlier in the year, but this um, Aaron, uh, I guess with the help of an uh, Association of Healthcare Journalists Fellowship, was able to do a pretty deep dive. And it's interesting because this is technically an association health plan, these things that, that the uh, uh, Trump administration wants to expand. And one of the things we know is that because they're allowed to underwrite, which insurers can't do under the Affordable Care Act, they tend to get, well, they can exclude sick people. Um, and so they get healthier people, and that draws them out of the market and uh, and leaves the people who remain in the market to have more expensive premiums. Uh, on the other hand, what's interesting, particularly about the Farm Bureau, is that they've been around a really long time. They do underwrite, but they also, you know, they don't cancel people who get sick. They, I mean, they, they, they have pretty, in fact, they have broader networks than a lot of other insurers. So they're actually attractive for other reasons than just if you're healthy, um, which makes this, I think it just points up how complicated the healthcare market is and how local healthcare markets are. And well, in Tennessee, such, I'm so glad Aaron wrote this story because it's really the only state due to some like, um, the Farm Bureau says it's not a loophole. It's a very clear exception, but it basically feels like there's an odd loophole in Tennessee law that allows them to exist, even though Obamacare banned these plans in every other state. Um, 
And if you're interested, if you found this and heard this and you think it sounds fascinating, Sabrina Corlett at Georgetown University has also done really great research on the Farm Bureau plans. So I will, yes, I will. I will link to all of that. Um, that is the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have comments or questions, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sarah Cliff. At Alice Olstein. At Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week, early because it's Thanksgiving. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>